Let's stand and invite the Lord before we open up his word. Lord Jesus, you say that the unfolding of your word gives light. And I pray that that light would shine as we would open up your word. I pray that this word would be like that double-edged sword, God, that would divide our thoughts and our our emotions, God, and pierce us through and expose, Lord, whatever doesn't belong. Your word is living and active, God, and we pray, feed our souls, our hungry souls with this word, your word, the living word. Be with us right now as we go through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This passage, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5. And as I was going through, and that's the wrong slides, uh, the 1 Corinthians 5, the, this passage really, really reminded me of a story uh, actually that happened to Ben, Pete Kachuk's brother. I think it's your younger brother, right? He's been here a couple of times, really great, kind brother. And, uh, you know, he's one of those tough Belarusians, right? And, you know, he used to work at a car dealership, and he had, you know, some, some pain kind of in his stomach, but he had to go to a conference, and they're on East Coast, so they go to conferences every other weekend. And, you know, he had to drive to Massachusetts for, what, eight hours? So, you know, he hops in the car, drives to Massachusetts to the conference, you know. You know, God still has some pain. You know, just drink a little water. It'll go away. Everything will be fine. You know, one of those kind of guys... And uh, so he comes to the conference, he's interacting with people, he's progressively feeling worse, he's getting a little more woozy, you know, and then we, he wakes up on Saturday and he's just even more tired, and, and I don't know if he even went that day to, to the conference, but he said by the end, he was just all just like pale, right? And people are like, hey, you better go to the ER and get this checked out. So he goes, you know, reluctantly goes to the ER Goes there, the doctors check him, and guess what? His appendix ruptured. And they're like, dude, you should have came here two days ago, right? You could, you could have killed yourself, right? The toxins, the infection could have spread to the rest of your body. So obviously, they put him on the operating table right away, you know, had to remove his appendix in order to essentially save his life. This passage, 1 Corinthians 5, is Paul's emergency Surgery that he has to perform on the church of the Corinthians. He realizes it is a desperate situation and he puts them on the operating table and he cuts them open. Today's passage is all about church discipline. And you're like, oh, great, we're going to be talking about that, right? Specifically, excommunication. And you know, when, when people think of church discipline, What's the first thing that kind of comes to mind, right? It, it, you know, it's people who don't want other people to have fun, right? The secret police stalking people out, you know, and, and busting them, right? Or like that quote about Puritanism goes, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be having a good time, right? And that's, that kind of encapsulates, encaps, encapsulates our perception, right, of church discipline. But in reality... Church discipline is a tool that God gives to his church, to us. And it's it's an enormous blessing when it's done biblically, when it's done right. First and foremost to the one receiving the discipline. 
So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the text and specifically what was going on in the Corinthian church and and the official church discipline and how they were supposed to respond to the sin in their church. And then what we're going to do is in part B, we're going to zoom out a little bit and we're going to look at an underlying principle that I think is should be applicable for all of us. So part A, church discipline. I remember one of my friends, he moved to America a long time ago, and he came, started going to Bright Church back in Solano days, right? And he, he was attending Bright Church, and everything's happy and good, and then some of the people came up to him, and they said, hey, um, brother, so you're attending here? Yeah, yeah, is this your church? Yeah. So you should become a member, you know? He's like, why? I'm, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy this way, the way it is, you know, why, why take these extra steps? said, well, that way, in case you sin and do something wrong, we can excommunicate you, right? And it's, it's ironic, right? It's, it's, hey, become a member of this club so that we can kick you out, right? Like, it, it seems ironic, but I hope that by the time we're done looking at 1 Corinthians 5, we'll be able to see this story in a different light. So, we're continuing through 1 Corinthians and for those of you maybe that might have missed some messages on 1 Corinthians, you got to understand, Corinthians was, you know, Corinth, the city of Corinth was very perverted, right? It's like the Las Vegas of America, right? The morality was really bad. Homosexuality, sexual morality was very rampant, right? People said a Corinthian girl, that was the, a different term for the term prostitute, right? So... And God begins to save people in Corinthians, in Corinth, and, and a church forms. And they get saved out of this immorality. And they're called to live a righteous life, a pure life, a holy life. But they're still living in this city of Corinth. They're still surrounded by this per- perverted and low moral standards. And so some of them, instead of being the Christians they ought to be, they begin to live like the Corinthians their neighbors, right? They began to conform to the people around them. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5 and we'll read 1 through 13 together. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Paul writing, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man's wife, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And that sounds intense, and we're going to talk about that and what that means. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And I also want to read 2 Corinthians, if you can flip a couple of pages, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So they actually ended up excommunicating the guy. And it's likely that 2 Corinthians 2 is talking about the same person. And in verse 5, he now, speaking of that same guy that got removed, he says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. And he says, For such a one, this punishment, that's the excommunication being removed from the church officially, not physically removed. This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I bring up both of these passages is because if we read just 1 Corinthians 5, we might become super, you know, robotic and, 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 you know, just carrying out this discipline without balancing it with the love that Paul carried in his heart. So we're going to be looking at both of these, but I want you just to keep in mind that this was Paul's heart, both 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. Now, a couple of things we want to note about what was going on. This was an ongoing situation, right? It wasn't someone who stumbled into sin, repented of it, turned, and, and was running after Jesus. No, this was ongoing. He was, he was living with his stepmother, right? And it was a member of the church. It was someone who was an active member, someone who professed to believe in Jesus, who said he loved Jesus. And the church was tolerant of it. In fact, they weren't just tolerant. Paul multiple times says, you're boastful, you're arrogant, you're proud. Meaning they were probably saying, oh, look, we've got so much grace. We can accept this and him and him. Look at how, how much grace we have, right? And Paul is saying, it's not grace. That's your boasting. You're boasting in your sin. Ought you not rather to mourn? The sin was so egregious that even the Gentiles around, the unbelievers around, they were shocked at how bad that was. So, for part one, I want to highlight three things. Three things. The first one is the importance of church discipline. There's too much at stake when it comes to church discipline. And, and if we don't understand the realities that are, that are assumed by the Bible, we won't understand the purpose of church discipline. So let us snap out of our little realities for a second. Out of our, it's so easy, isn't it? As we live life in our, you know, Monday through Fridays, Mondays through Saturdays, it's so easy to get stuck in our routines, in our patterns. You wake up, you take a shower, you go to work, you come home, you do something, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to work, take a shower, you do the same thing over and over. It's so easy to just fall into this pattern and kind of forget everything else that's around us. 
It's like getting stuck, you know, on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok and you're, and you're just swiping up and then you look outside and it's dark. You're like, oh, wow. And you keep swiping, you look up and it's bright outside again, right? You've gotten sucked in. But there's so much more to reality than what this little box is showing us. There's so much more to this world than what we see on our little screens. Church, I'm here to remind all of us including myself, that God is real. He's not just some mythological entity that we come and we talk about theoretically. No, he's real. And he made all that you see right now, all that you see with your eyes, all that is visible, your breathing, your bodies, your friends, your family. God created all that. Someone made it. He made it. He is the creator. And to him as the creator, we owe our everything. He is the potter. We are the clay. He does whatever he pleases, and he is good in all that he does. And not only do we have a God and a creator, a father, but we also have an enemy, a powerful dark spirit whom the Bible describes as the ruler of this world. He rules this world, and he works on the macro and the micro levels. And his ultimate goal is simple. It's to oppose all that is good. All that is of God, he wants to oppose it. He goes against it, but here's the good news. The gospel is that God will win. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the good news. God will win no matter what. God will destroy all evil one day. God will put everything in its place, in its proper place. God will make all things right. That That longing for justice, that longing for all things to be right, God will satisfy that. God will make all things new one day, and we will live forever in a place with no more evil, no more pain, no more tears, no more problems, and we will actually see the presence of God. The Word of God says that we will see His face, which has been hidden by the brokenness of this world. But you see, there's a huge problem. If we look at reality, we need to be honest. We, through our sin, we have joined the enemy's side. All of us have joined the enemy's side. All of us have become co-conspirators against God. All of us have sold out. All of us have taken the easy way out. We have treated others unfairly. We have spoken evil of others. We have thought evil things thereby pledging our allegiance to the enemy of God. And so when God corrects this world, when God finally rebalances all things, he will not just get rid of the enemy, but all who have followed him. That's us. But that's the beauty of the gospel, right? God doesn't just come in and just just with brute force just destroy everyone. But God in the overabundance of his love, in the, the overabundance, overflowing of his goodness, he sacrifices his son in exchange for us. So he doesn't just destroy us the way he ought to. He purchases us, he washes us, he redeems us, sanctifies us, and brings us back to him. Instead of sweeping us away with the rebellion, You see, justice demands retribution to the fullest. 
But those who have believed in Jesus, those who have believed in the King and have put their trust in Him, they can spend an eternity with God. And those who refuse to believe will will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. It's not going to be the wrath of the devil, guys. The devil will be receiving the same wrath as everyone who refuses to follow Jesus. Because all wrong, all evil has to be removed. And justice needs to be served, friends. It has to. And we all know that and we feel that in our heart of hearts. And so now, for us who have believed in Jesus who have been born again, we now live in this interesting state between the great work of Christ on the cross and God's renewal of all things, the rebalancing of the universe, the serving of ultimate justice. We live somewhere here in between. And we are new, but we still have to stay on guard. The word of God always says, stay sober-minded, be alert, be watchful. You have an enemy who is, who is like a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy. And the thing that he uses to devour us with is sin. And all of what I just mentioned, it's all found in God's word. This is base reality, church. This is real reality. This is the realest reality that we can have that has been revealed to us. I'm here to remind us, church, That ultimate reality, it's not about us. It's not about me, right? And it's not about us entertaining ourselves all the days of our life. It is not about our careers or our hobbies or even our families, as important as they are. It's not about the 80, 90 years that we're going to live here on earth. Ultimate reality is about Christ, He is the epicenter of all things and who he is and what he does and how everything else relates back to him. He is at the center of all things. And if you don't see that, then you don't see reality how it really is. He is ultimate reality. And if we believe the words of God then these very real and intense realities, they demand an appropriate response, right? If you're playing a video game, probably don't care if you die in that game, right? Because there's not a lot at stake. There are no real consequences. But if you are going to go skydiving and you're packing your own parachute, you bet you're going to triple check your parachute, right? You're going to make sure everything's right because that might be your last skydiving session if you don't, right? But what the Word of God reveals to us about life and reality is even more intense than the truth that you have one life to live, so pack your parachute well. What, we, what the Bible tells us is even more dramatic than that, something more serious. So desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, it's not okay for people to stab other people, right? To cut other people with knives. And yet, there are people who do that every single day. In fact, we have people here who do that, and they get away with it. And not only do they get away with it, people thank them for it. They're called surgeons, right? Desperate times call for desperate measures. So it's all about what's the context, right? The reason, why am I bringing this up? 
Why am I starting at the 50,000 foot view? It's to provide the context for the importance of church discipline. Church, if life is just a big experience of entertainment, then church discipline makes no sense. If life is just a big collection of hobbies and having fun, if that's all it is, and by the way, it's okay to have fun, don't, don't get me wrong, but if that's all that life is for us, then, then church discipline is wrong, right? It's a buzzkill. But if life is all that we just talked about and eternal destinies are at stake, then church discipline is like that surgeon who comes in and physically cuts people open, literally. And then people thank him for it. It's a very extremely important tool that God has given to us as the church. So that's the, that's the foundation. That's the importance of church discipline. Let's go to point number two, the purpose of church discipline. The, the number one purpose is salvation of the one who is being disciplined. That's, it says it right there in verse five. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We are to discipline so that his spirit may be saved. Now, right before that, it says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And now, that sounds really intense, and maybe some people are imagining some, you know, ritual that you do, and you deliver someone to Satan, and a dark spirit comes and takes them away, never to be seen again. But that's not what the Bible probably has in mind. Because, if, again, if you look at the world from the Bible's perspective, the biblical worldview, there is God's kingdom, and there is whose kingdom? Satan's kingdom, right? God's kingdom, Satan's kingdom. And there's nothing in between, right? You're either in one or the other. You're either dead or alive. You're pregnant or you're not, right? There's, there's the only two options that you have. If you are not in the church, which is God's kingdom here on earth at, in this day and age, if you are outside of that, then you are, by definition, part of Satan's kingdom. There are no in-between. And there are people that want to be in-between, right, who say, oh, I, I want to be part of the church. I want to be part of God's kingdom, but I want to live my life the way I want to live. And the answer is no. If you want to live your life the way you want to live and disregard what God says in his word, then you're going to be outside of that and you're going to be in Satan's kingdom. Delivering someone to Satan right, excommunicating them, is the church's way of saying the behaviors you are engaging in, the sins that you are taking part in are not okay. That's what that is. That's not how the people of God are supposed to live. It's, it's the church's way of saying, hey, friend, you are on the wrong path. And we're going we're gonna to excommunicate you to show you that, to make it clear to you. And this is probably an echo of Matthew 18, 17. If you think, well, it's just Paul being very severe. Well, no, Jesus actually talk, taught about the same exact thing. Remember when Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, talk to him, right? If he doesn't listen, take two or three more people with you. And if he doesn't listen to them, that's where verse 17 comes in. If he refuses to listen to them, that's the smaller group, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. 
In other words, may he be to you as an unbeliever. He is now no longer part of the church because he stubbornly refuses to admit his sin and to turn from his sin. And all of this, remember church, all of it is done so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The, when, when a church delivers someone to Satan, when a church excommunicates someone, that shocking realization should be enough for a person to come to their senses like, wow, all these people are saying I'm wrong and I think I'm right. Like maybe there's, maybe I'm missing something, right? Maybe I'm, I could be wrong, right? Let me consider that. But for those who stubbornly refuse to turn, the next stage kicks in, and that's where it says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Meaning sin oftentimes carries with itself natural consequences, doesn't it? Whether it be liver failure, or drugs, or STDs, or depression, or anxiety, or harm from other people living in that similar lifestyle, imprisonment, betrayal, whatever it is, right? That destruction of his flesh... Those are natural consequences of sin when people live in sin. And it's, again, all of it is done for the purpose of saving his spirit. The hope is that the person being afflicted by these natural consequences of sin, his flesh being destroyed, will, will turn, right? He'll realize, oh, wow, I'm living in the wrong. I need, to, I need to change something, right? And that's exactly what turned me personally from living in my sin, right? It, it's the, literally the most painful day in my life to this day. Maybe I'll have more, even a more painful day someday in the future. But to this day, the most painful day in my life was the day when God turned me from living in my sin, from making me realize that I am running straight to hell and turned me back to God. But it only happened through the most painful pain I've ever felt. It was that pain of betrayal and that emotional damage that was like God's scalpel that just cut my, cut everything open directly into the heart. It's like open heart surgery without anesthetic to pull the tumor out, which saved my life. Next slide. Psalm 119 verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. And verse 71 says, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your statutes or your word. So again, I, I want us to not have the impression that delivering someone to Satan or excommunicating someone is done out of hate towards that person, right? Again, look at 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, forgive him. This is after they've already excommunicated. Forgive him, comfort him, right? Or else he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Reaffirm your love for him. The intention is always, always, always for the good of the person to win the brother over. The second sub-reason for the purpose of church discipline is to stop the spread, right? If we can go to the next slide. Verses 6 and 7 say, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Now, most of us don't work with leaven on a daily basis, but leaven is yeast. It's the thing that makes bread 
instead of be flat, makes it be nice and fluffy, right? But uh, maybe a more, uh, an analogy that we deal with more commonly, it's like mold or a rotten apple, right? It's that rottenness or that appendix that got infected and it's about to spread to the rest of the body, right? You throw the apple into a barrel, a rotten apple, it's going to spoil the whole barrel, The doctor advises, right, to amputate the infected limb or to remove the appendix in order to protect the rest of the body. What Paul is saying is, do you not know that a little leaven, just a little bit of leaven, that little bit of sin, that little bit of infection, it's going to infect the whole lump. He's saying, don't you know, church, that sin that's unaddressed, that it's infectious, we already all struggle with enough of our own sins, but when it goes unaddressed, when, it go, when it's celebrated, right? When, when you're arrogant about it, don't you understand it's going to spread everywhere else? He's saying, get rid of it. Don't let it infect the rest. We all have this happen before, right? You, you walk into a public restroom, you wash your hands, and on your way out, you get the paper towel, and you're in a hurry, right? And so we throw the paper towel into the waste bin, and the waste bin's overflowing, and there's a bunch of paper towels on the ground, and the paper towel falls on the ground. Let's be honest. Let's not, I'm not going to do a survey, but most people, we don't, like, we're in a hurry, right? We got to go. We're not going to pick it up because there's a bunch of other paper towels on the floor, right? But if you're doing that, and you throw it in, and there's not a single paper towel on the floor, and it, you miss, right, because you were never good at basketball anyway, and it falls on the floor, right, what are we going to do? We're going to, oh, man, that, no, that's the standard, right? We, we're going to come back, pick it up, even if we're in a hurry, and we're going to throw it away, right? It's the same exact thing. Sin that is unaddressed and accepted in the church is eventually normalized, and that normalization leads it to spread to other people, right? And it harms many, many more people. Again, we're not talking about people who realize that they're sinning, that they they repent of that, they confess their sin, they fight their sin, and we're talking about those who continue to live in their sin stubbornly despite all the loving warnings that they're receiving Third, under part A, is how. How should we deliver this church discipline? If we can go to the next slide. First of all, we need to make it clear. Verse 3, again, next slide, it says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. And then verse 11, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he is guilty, right, do not even Eat with such a one. If we're, we don't pronounce judgment and, and not associate with people who claim to be brothers, but they're living in sin, we don't do it. If we do it in a loving way, we're actually being an instrument of God for their good. Right, the purpose of not associating is not to be mean. The purpose—it's it, it, not a club, right? Like we talked about before, church is not a club. And then now we kick you out, and we're holier than thou, and we're better than you. So don't even come near us, right? I don't—I don't want to be defiled by your unholy presence. That's not the heart here. That's not the intention at all. It shouldn't be. It's the purpose of doing that. The purpose of not even eating, like Paul says. Is, is, is to be clear in what we communicate to people. Meaning, hey, you're on the wrong path. 
You're on the wrong path. Paul says, don't even eat with such one. What we don't want to do is we don't want to create an illusion for that other person that everything's fine, right? You're living your sin, but it's, but it's totally fine, right? You call yourself a Christian, right? If someone's been excommunicated or they're living in obvious, blatant sin and they call themselves Christian, that's the key. If someone doesn't call themselves Christian, brother, they don't really care, I don't really care, Hang out with them all you want, right? That's, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about those who say, no, no I'm a Christian. I'm a brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they continue to live in that sin. The word of God says we shouldn't be hanging out with them as if there was no problem. And I understand it's a gray area. Like, what does hanging out really mean? That's for you to pray through, through this passage, for the Holy Spirit to lead you and how to apply that. But... But we can't pretend like there is no problem. I think that's the key here. We can't pretend as if their sin is not leading them down the wrong path, leading them to spiritual death, right? We should not muddy the waters for people by saying one thing with our words, hey, that's really wrong, that sin is really wrong, the way you're living is leading you literally to hell. And I understand there's there's gray areas, but then there's sin, right? We say one thing with our words, but then with our actions, we say something completely different. But it's okay. It's not a big deal, right? We can hang out. We can pretend like nothing ever happens. It's like, you know, it's like trying to take your friend on a vacation who needs urgent cancer treatment, right? You don't do that. That's not loving to take that friend on a vacation. What they, they don't need a distraction. They need treatment. They need help. And the next Part, as we've already shown on the slides, it's to be done lovingly. If we can go to the next slide, just I want you to hear Paul's love in 2 Corinthians 2 as he's talking again about this guy that God excommunicated. So it's funny, the, the, the Corinthians went from like totally approving him to completely excommunicating the guy, kicking him to the curb. And then Paul's like, wait, 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 you guys are overdoing it again. You guys are overdoing it. He says, come back, come back to the middle. He says, for such a one, that's this guy, this punishment by the majority, it's enough. So you would rather, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Look at Paul's heart, Paul's yearning for this soul. He says, I don't want him to get lost in the world. I don't want him to be hardened by excessive sorrow. I want him to turn. I want him to be rejoined. Forgive him. Bring him back in. Restore him. Church discipline is always to be done out of love for the other person, out of a desire for a quick restoration, never for punishment or vengeance towards that person. Galatians 6, 1, 2, same spirit here. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself for fear that you too be tempted. No one is that spiritual and that holy that they are safe from temptations. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul did not want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says, give him grace. Bring him back. Restore him if he is repentant. So, Remember that story I said about my friend who moved to America and, you know, started attending Bright, and they told him, oh, you should become a member so we can excommunicate you if you do something wrong. I hope that, that you see now as we've gone through 1 Corinthians 5 that that's actually really good logic. That's actually uh, God-honoring, and it's, it's actually a blessing 
Uh, and that's the tool that God has given to us. It's biblical because church membership and, and church discipline is a what we call a means of grace. Or in other words, a tool of grace that God has given to his people for the spiritual protection of his people. For his spiritual protection of you and me, all of us. And actually... If you believed in the Lord Jesus, if you believe in him and, and you're, you're trying to follow him, first of all, if you're not baptized, get baptized. That's the Bible. That's the command in the Bible, right? Make that public profession of your faith to the world. And then after you've done that, if you're not a church member, I urge you, become a church member, whether here at Bright or some other church, faithful church, but become a church member. Commit and say, say, you know what? You guys are my brothers. I give you authority to call me out, to hold me accountable, and even to serve church discipline to me if I begin to stray. Because that's God's system. That's God's design for the church. It is a protection for all of us. It's an insurance to know that, you know what, you're accountable to these people, to these brothers and sisters that I see on a weekly basis. It's God's design. Let's go to the next slide just to recap. We talked about the importance. Oh, back. We talked about the importance, the purpose, and the how. And now let's talk about the principle. So, and uh, we've all had this happen before, right? It's usually after a meeting, after lunch, and you're meeting with somebody, and they're sitting there, and every time they open their mouth, it just like, it's distracting, right? And, and you're trying to listen to what they're saying, but you can't, because every time they open their mouth, all you can see is that piece of spinach or that little poppy seed, you know, in their tooth, and you're just like, oh, okay, you try to look away, you know, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to listen to your words instead of looking at that, but every time they open up their mouth, every time they laugh and they smile, it just, you can't help it, right, and it's super distracting. Now, let's do a little mental survey, you don't need to write this down anywhere, but out of the last 10 times that that has happened to you, when you've seen someone out of those 10 times, how many times have you actually told the other person that they had that food stuck between their teeth? I have someone show me 10. Praise God. That's good. Keep it up. But let's be honest. Most people, probably not 10, right? Maybe nine, maybe eight, maybe zero, right? Maybe that's your policy. I never say it. Now, now, Reverse the roles. If you're in those shoes and each of those 10 times, would you have wanted the other person to call you out to say, hey, just, <laughs> you know, you've got a little poppy seed stuck between your teeth and you're about to go into your meeting with your boss and it's going to be even more embarrassing, right? Would you, we all have wanted, right? There's actually been studies done on this, right? And, and almost always people say, yes, I want that feedback. 10 out of 10. But then there's this big discrepancy between how many times we actually give that feedback. And one of the theories of why we hesitate is because we don't want to be awkward, right? We don't want to get into that situation, right? We want to preserve the relationship. We want things to be smooth. And here's the reality. For most of us, even as pastors, we're not excommunicating people on a weekly basis. Thank God, right? But... 
from this text, we have a principle that we can apply on a weekly basis. As we go deeper into 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to bring up this image of a body. He's saying, we as Christians, we as the church, we're a body. Meaning, we are all composed of parts that need one another, right? A hand, you don't see a hand laying around, like, doing its own thing, walking around, has a little career, a little family, right? We don't, we don't have that, right? It's, it all has to be together, right? And he's saying, you are a body, you need one another. We can't exist on our own. And sometimes, needing one another includes calling each other out. Church, this is for all of us. We all have people in our lives that we need to speak truth into their lives. We need to be honest. Sometimes we need to do something and say something that we are very uncomfortable with, but it's for the good of the other person. Let us not try to preserve the relationship, but to the detriment of this person who's going to go on and hurt themselves, actually. It's uncomfortable to excommunicate. It's uncomfortable to not go and eat with somebody, right? To say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to participate. And that's, that's awkward. That's hard. What Paul is calling the Corinthian church to do, that's difficult. But we're called to do it for the good of that person. Instead of making our feelings and our level of comfort our idol, and holding on to that at, to the detriment, to the cost of other people, we are called to take that risk, to make that sacrifice. Maybe they won't respond well, but to be uncomfortable for the good of others. And just a very specific way is just calling each other out lovingly. Right? Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love. Right? There's some people that are really good at love. Right? I'm going to love you. I'm going to do everything for you all the time. Nice, nice, nice. And then there's people that are really good at truth, you know, and they're just going to smack you with truth upside the head, right? And you're going to want to die after that, right? And the Word of God tells us, hey, you need to speak the truth, but you need to do it in love. You need to do both. And some of you are here, some of you are here, but you've got to meet somewhere in the middle. You need to speak that truth in love. Church, we are our brother's keepers. We are. And we are to care about our brothers and sisters and to tell them the truth in hopes that that truth will help them spiritually rather than to maintain the relationship and never be honest. Proverbs 28, 23 says, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Guys, this is true. This is a reality, a law, a promise from God. Proverbs 24, 11. This is, this is a wild passage. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Catch them, right? Hold them back if they're stumbling to the slaughter. They, you see, they're doing something wrong. They're on the wrong path. If you say, behold, we did not know. that I had no idea that this person was on that path and this is what was going on. Look at what Solomon says. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Meaning, God sees your heart. God knows the truth. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his works? Don't play dumb. That's what... Solomon is saying, God knows everything. God knows that you know, and you're just ignoring it. God knows that. 
So hold back the one who is stumbling to the slaughter. That's what the word of God is urging us to do. And church, I know it's not easy. As I call the band up, I know we all have people in our lives that we need to, that need us to speak truth with love into their lives. Many times I've had these situations where it's like, you see that and someone's on the wrong path and and you know you've got to say something to a friend, to a brother and everything inside of me every time is just screaming no. Like no, just just no. There's so much tension. It's, there's so much unease. It's like, I'm not comfortable. I don't want to do this. And you know what? My brain becomes this like factory of making excuses, right? It's just like, well, it's not my business. I'm hungry. You know, it's not the right time. I've got a headache. I don't feel right. The problem will go away on its own, right? That's our favorite one, right? And it's all going to self-resolve. Everything's going to be fine, What if he's going to reject what I say? What if he's going to just play dumb, push me away? Who are you to go get into my life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We make so many excuses. But by God's grace, the times, and I didn't always succeed in that. There's times I failed and I didn't say anything. But the times that I did take that step of faith and just lovingly speaking the truth, not accusing, but just even asking questions. Just coming in, God has done amazing things. He really has. He's, he's done amazing things, and it's, it's wild to think that God can use us to bless another brother or sister in a very deep and meaningful way for them. God softens the heart, brings repentance, turns people back to him. I just want to leave us with James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 19 This is James urging the Christians, the brothers. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So church, friends, don't hold back. We are our brother's keepers. So let us speak to one another, the truth in love. Amen? We're going to stand right now. We're going to have a minute of quiet reflection time. Jesus, we thank you. We worship you for not staying in your own comfort zone. Heaven had everything for you, God. That was your rightful place. That's what you deserved. And punishment in hell is what we deserved. You went, you went out of your way for our sake to save us who are stumbling to the slaughter. God, and I know we'll never be able to perfectly imitate you. God, I pray you give us the strength and the courage to be able to do that for one another. God, help us actually practice what we preach or what we hear preached. God, and I pray for those who might not even know you, God, and this whole thing is confusing. I pray that they would find you, you, the source of life. There is no life apart from you. There is no joy. That you are that spring of water welling up into eternal life. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, bless us and be with us. We need you. We pray. Amen.